There's a story that 40 years ago, Arnold Palmer, the famous American golfer, was invited by the king of Saudi Arabia to play a series of exhibition golf matches in Saudi Arabia. Arnold Palmer accepted the invitation, and so the king of Saudi Arabia flew Arnold over there on his private jet to play golf. Palmer played in a series of tournaments, and as he was leaving to return back to the USA, as he was just about to get on the plane, the king said that he would like to give Arnold Palmer a thank you gift, anything he wanted, a memento of his visit. Arnold Palmer said it wasn't necessary. Look, you've been a great host. I've just enjoyed playing here. I couldn't ask for anything more. But the king insisted. He said he'd be very disappointed if he couldn't give Arnold Palmer at least something. So Arnold Palmer finally gave in. He said, OK, I collect golf clubs. Why don't you give me a golf club? That would be a lovely souvenir of my visit. Arnold Palmer got on the plane, went back home. A few days later, he receives something in the mail from the king. It's the title to a golf club, an 18-hole golf club. (laughs) Trees, fairways, clubhouse, a 500-acre golf club. And this is the moral of the story. In the presence of a king, don't ask for small gifts. What is the one thing that you want to ask of King Jesus Good health? Too small. Better marriage? Too small. A better job? Too small. Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What is it that you most want from King Jesus? This morning. We're continuing on in Mark's biography. We're up to verse 40 of chapter 1. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, If you're willing, you can make me clean. Here's a man who wants something from King Jesus. He has a need, he has leprosy. Now, according to the Old Testament, if you have leprosy, you were unclean, you were alienated from people. You had to live outside the camp, so you were alienated from God. Leviticus 13.45 says this, The person with such an infectious sin disease must wear torn clothes, let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. This man is caught in living hell, having to warn people wherever he goes that he's unclean, living alone or by Jesus' day at best in a colony with other lepers. And so this man comes to Jesus, he's on his knees, he begs Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 41, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was cured. I don't know how long since this leper was touched by another human being who didn't have leprosy because no one touched a leper because if you touched an unclean person, you became unclean. 
But it's different with Jesus. Jesus touches the leper and the leper becomes clean. But for Jesus, though, this is not just about the leprosy. Look at verse 44. Jesus now commands the man to do something. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. See, leprosy gone is just the start. This man can now go to the temple. He can offer the appropriate sacrifice to God and he can be declared clean in God's sight. Not just to have his leprosy gone, but to be clean, whole, restored to God and to his people. But it seems that's not what the man wants at all. He's content with just having his leprosy cured. Verse 45, instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, he could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Started off so well, the man asking to be clean, but here, now that he's cured, he can go to the temple, but he doesn't. Now that he's cured, he can offer the sacrifices to be clean again, but he doesn't. The leper is content with having his leprosy cured. And not only that, he doesn't even obey King Jesus who's healed him. He does exactly what Jesus told him not to do. He goes talking about what Jesus has done and makes it harder for Jesus. Jesus now has to go into lonely places. Here's a leper in the presence of a king. It looked like he was asking for something good. But really it's like the kid who's playing with a wrapping paper instead of the present at Christmas time. He's missed the biggest gift. And the leper doesn't know what he's missing out on. What is it that you most want from King Jesus this morning? Well, secondly, we meet a paralyzed man, point two on your outlines. Here we see most clearly what it is that Jesus wants us to ask him for. Mark 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered, there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and, after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Jesus arrives back in Capernaum, There's a crowd, Jesus is preaching to them, and these four guys bring their paralysed friend to Jesus on a stretcher. Just imagine the frustration, imagine the disappointment when there's no room. And so they get up onto the roof. Houses in those times sometimes had steps on the side so you could go and sit on the roof. You might remember from the Old Testament, King David saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof. So getting up on the roof is not unusual. But digging a hole through the roof and lowering someone through it, that is unusual. But this man is desperate. He can't walk. He lives in a society with no social security, no hospitals, no wheelchairs. What he does have, though, is four good friends who bring him to Jesus. And so right in the middle of Jesus preaching, the roof starts falling in. Down comes this guy on a stretcher. I had a sermon interrupted once at Surrey Hills when I was in Sydney preaching. 
a drunk guy came in off the street yelling and screaming. It just kind of distracted everything. But that is nothing compared to this. Imagine the tension in the room as everyone was just waiting to see what Jesus would do. Would he be angry with the guy for interrupting his first sermon back in Capernaum? This guy's jumped the queue, hasn't he? What about the guys waiting out the front? Would Jesus go and heal them first? Would he heal the guy? Now, we've read the story. We know what happens next. But if you were there in the crowd that morning, afternoon, whenever it was, you would have no idea of what Jesus was about to do next. Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, get up and walk. He'll say that later, but he, he doesn't say that here. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, at least with the leper, Jesus had to heal his leprosy to make him clean. So the leper got what he wanted, even if he, it wasn't what he most needed. But here, Jesus doesn't even heal the guy. Here's a man with an obvious need. He can't walk. If there was disappointment back in chapter 1, verse 35, when Jesus left Capernaum to go off and preach and left all the sick people behind, imagine the disappointment here. He's come back, he's, and the four friends, they're staring down the hole in the roof. Jesus has done his stuff. He said his words, and their friend is still lying on his mat, paralyzed. I mean, what do you do now? Pull him back up? Ask Jesus to have another go. Tell Jesus that wasn't exactly what you had in mind. And yet if Jesus, if the paralyzed man or his friends on the roof have eyes to see it, this man has just been given the best possible gift from King Jesus. Might not have been what he would have asked for, but it's what he most needed. This is like the, go- the Arnold Palmer asking for a golf club and he gets an entire golf course. Because this man's biggest need is not to walk. This man's biggest need is to have his sins forgiven and be made right with God. We look at a man who needs to be forgiven. We see a paralysed man. Jesus looks at a man who needs to be forgiven and he sees a man who needs to be forgiven. That's what life's like, isn't it? We have these felt needs We have things in life that cause us incredible pain or frustration and we think they're our biggest problem. Jesus thinks your biggest problem is your need to be forgiven by him. What's the one thing you will ask of King Jesus this morning? It's an incredible thing, though, to to claim to be able to forgive sins, which is what Jesus is claiming here. He's forgiven the guy's sins. And that is not lost on the religious people, the good people in the room. Verse 6. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They make a good point here. If I came and punched you in the nose right now, And then um, I went to the person next to you, sitting next to you, and said, do you forgive me for punching them in the nose? And they said, yes. Am I forgiven? I'm not, because you're the person I punched in the nose. If you're the person I've wronged, I need to ask you to forgive me. And when you forgive me, I'm forgiven. It's the offended party who can forgive or withhold forgiveness. Ultimately, when we do things wrong, 
we do it against God. He's the king we have rejected. And so only God can forgive our sins. I think uh, you see that really clearly in Psalm 51, which is the prayer of King David. It's a great psalm about forgiveness. Um, don't, Don't look it up now. You might want to look it up later, Psalm 51. David sees a beautiful woman, Bathsheba, having a bath on her roof. She's married. He sleeps with her. He commits adultery. She gets pregnant. So then he has her husband, Uriah, killed. And then the prophet Nathan comes and rebukes him and shows him what a terrible thing he's done. And this is his prayer to God afterwards. Psalm 51. A psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. I don't know if you notice verse 4, but what does David mean by saying to God, against you and you only have I sinned? Because if you read, read the Old Testament, I can think of a lot of people that King David sinned against. He went and slept with Bathsheba, who's married to Uriah the Hittite. I would say David has sinned against Uriah, sleeping with his wife. He then has Uriah killed in battle. I'd say that's a sin against Uriah. He's the king of Israel. I'd say it's a sin against the whole nation of Israel to abuse his authority like that. And yet David in this prayer to God says, against you and you only have I sinned. Because David has realized that all wrong ultimately is against God. Whether you commit adultery, whether you murder, whether you lie, whether you cheat on your tax return, Whatever you do wrong, you do it against God. He made you. He put you in this world. He's the king. He put on his heart how he wants you to live. And we wrong him. So in the end, whoever you may have wronged here on earth pales into insignificance compared with your wrong against God. And whether other people forgive you here on earth is irrelevant compared with whether you're forgiven by God. And what Jesus is offering here is total forgiveness from God. Jesus has the authority of God on earth to forgive sins. That's a big claim to have God's authority to forgive sins. Some people question that authority. Verse 8, Jesus knows it though. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? That's a funny question, isn't it? Which is easier? It's a bit of a riddle, I think. I mean, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because, look, I can say that, Earl, your sins are forgiven. How does anyone know if it's happened or not? If I say to Earl, get up, take up your mat, and walk, and he's a paralyzed man, it's pretty obvious if I'm telling the truth or not. Which is easier? Forgiving sins is not easy, is it? It actually cost Jesus his life. In order for Jesus here to say, 
your sins are forgiven, he will have to take upon himself the punishment for those sins. That's not easier. But to heal a man, that's not easy. To forgive sins, only God can do that. And I think the point that Jesus is making here is simply that none is easier. They're both impossible. It's impossible for man to forgive sins. It's impossible for a man to heal someone. But Jesus, by God's authority, can do them both. And to prove it, he heals the guy. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anyone like this. Do you see what's happening? It's hard for Jesus to prove that he's forgiven the guy's sins. So to prove it, he does something obvious. He makes the guy walk again. Laura, our daughter, you might remember, had a broken leg back in June. She was in traction for six weeks. When we got the traction off, the x-ray said that her leg was totally better. Her bone was healed, but she still couldn't walk. Took a week before she was game to even try. Took another week until she started to walk, and she's still limping now. Two months later, this man gets up, picks up his mat and walks. His legs are healed. Whatever um, atrophy or whatever the muscles had is gone. His brain knows how to walk. He's got his balance. He walks. Jesus has done the impossible twice. He's forgiven his sins and he's healed the guy. The guy came in just wanting to walk, but he's left not only walking, but forgiven by God. This is like asking for $5 and you get $5 million, plus the five. I wonder if the man realises the significance of who Jesus is and what he's just received. What about you? What is the one thing you'd like to ask of King Jesus this morning? Jesus is willing to forgive sins. Jesus is able to to forgive sins. He does forgive sins. And in the next section, we see that's exactly why he came. Once more for the dummies, in in case you didn't yet get it. Verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him. He began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. When you see tax collector, think bad. I'm not saying anything about accountants today, but in those days... Tax collectors used to cheat. They used to take a bit more. They were bad. Jesus says to this bad tax collector, follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners, bad people, were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, read good people, saw Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does Jesus eat with bad people? Jesus not only calls Levi to follow him, a bad person, Jesus now is hanging around in his house with other bad friends. And this sets up, upsets some of the good people. And the punchline to this whole section is verse 17. On hearing this, 
Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That is why Jesus came. For sinners. And we're all sinners. Unless you think that you're too good, like the Pharisees and sack collectors. But in Jesus' eyes, we're all sinners. Doesn't matter whether it's the lame man, the paralyzed man, Levi, you, me. We're all sick. We all need a doctor. We're all sinners. We all need forgiving by God. Ernest Hemingway tells the story of a Spanish father and his rebellious teenage son, Paco. Paco runs away from home to live on the streets of Madrid, and his father is heartbroken. It's a bit like the prodigal son, except here the father leaves home and goes in search of his lost son, Paco. He can't find him in Madrid, and finally, in desperation, Paco's father places an ad in the Madrid newspaper. The ad says this, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. Anyway, noon on Tuesday, Paco's father, Papa, is waiting at the front of the hotel. 800 Pacos (laughs) turn up, hoping to be forgiven by their fathers. The leper's biggest need? Forgiveness from God. Paralytic's biggest need? Forgiveness from God. Levi's biggest need? Forgiveness from God. Your biggest need? Forgiveness from God. And you stand here this morning in the presence of King Jesus. What is the one thing you will ask from him? He's willing to forgive you. He's able to forgive you. That's why he came. Is that the one thing that you will ask from King Jesus?